If you have a Bible, we are in the Old Testament book of Kings. I mentioned 2 Kings chapter 22. So if you have a Bible, I invite you to open with me there. 2 Kings chapter 22 is our text this morning. Way back in the book of Deuteronomy, one of those first five books of the Bible, Deuteronomy was written about 800 years before the events of our chapter, just prior to Israel going to enter the promised land of Canaan is when Moses speaks and writes the book of Deuteronomy. And there's a section in that book, 800 years back, that pertains to the future kings of Israel. Although it would be almost 400 years before there would be a king of Israel, 400 years after Moses wrote these words that there would be a king of Israel, nonetheless, it was God's purpose for Israel to eventually be ruled by kings. So in this book, Deuteronomy, the book of the law, this restatement of the covenant, the Mosaic covenant, he gives some requirements for Israel's kings. found in chapter 17. I'll put this portion on the screen for you. After he says that kings should not do, they shouldn't be like the kings of the nations. They shouldn't multiply horses, military strength. They shouldn't multiply wives like so common. And they shouldn't multiply riches for themselves. They shouldn't be like that. Then he says something that I think is completely unique and utterly essential for kings to do. That's what it says. Let me read it. Now shall come to pass when he, the king, sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a copy of this law, as this book, Deuteronomy, on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priest, and it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear Yahweh his God by a carefully observing all the words of this law and these statutes, that his heart may not be lifted up above his countrymen, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right or to the left, in order that he and his sons may continue long in his kingdom in the midst of Israel. Isn't that fascinating? This is the king's personal Bible writing and reading program. I want you to have. I want you to write your own copy, and I want you to read it every day so that you be the king I want you to be. We move forward 800 years in our study of kings to 2 Kings 22. 800 years. Kings now, various kings have been ruling this nation of Israel, God's people, for the past 400 of these years. And we have rarely if ever seen a king exemplify the requirements, the stipulations of Deuteronomy 17. A few get close. We've rarely seen it until today. Until today. Until our chapter today. In 2 Kings 22, we move now from the very worst king... And the whole nation, 
King Manasseh. That's what we saw last week. The, the worst king in the whole nation, in their whole 400 years history. He was the worst king and he was the longest reigning king. Remember that? 55 years, the worst king reigns. We thought on that. That's odd. Why is that? And then two years of his wicked son. So 57 years of wickedness and evil, the worst it gets. We move from that to the very best king of Israel and Judah. The best king in the nation's history, surpassing Hezekiah and even surpassing David, if you can believe it. His name is Josiah. The very best. Look at chapter 22. Let me just read the intro there. The formula that we're used to, verses 1 and 2, says, Josiah was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem, and his mother's name was Jedidah, the daughter of Adiah of Bozkoth. And he did right in the sight of Yahweh and walked in all the way of his father David, nor did he turn aside to the right or to the left. See that last phrase? We just read that phrase in Deuteronomy. That's Deuteronomy language. He didn't turn to the right or to the left. That's not said of any other king, even David. Did you know that? And then, just to give you a sneak peek here, chapter 23 Go all the way to chapter 23, verse 25. I'll put it on the screen also. We get kind of at the end here a summary of this king. Verse 25 of chapter 23, speaking of Josiah. And before him, there was no king like him who turned to Yahweh with all his heart, with all his soul, and with all his might, according to all the law of Moses. Nor did any like him arise after him. Again, do you hear that language? It's Deuteronomy language. With all his heart, with all his soul, with all his might. That's Deuteronomy 6 language of the Shema. Oh, hear Israel. Love the Lord with all your heart. So that's what he did. There wasn't a king like him before, nor a king like him after. This is the pinnacle of kingship in the whole nation for 400 years. He saves the very best for last. We've been waiting for this kind of king, the the whole book, haven't we? Since David, we've been waiting for this kind of king. However, let me give you the punchline of the whole account of Josiah. It's too late. It's too late. Judah, the only nation that's surviving now, cannot be saved from God's judgment. Even with the very, very best king, it's too late. Too little, too late. That's the main point of this tremendous account of this very good Now, I give you that main point because we're going to save that main point until next week, Lord willing, because the account of Josiah is given over two full chapters, which is too much, you know, way too much for us to look at this morning. There's a lot of good stuff in here. So we're going to save the main thing 
the main point of his story until next week and think about that and how it works in the story. But in the first part of the story, there is something that's really exquisite that I would like us to consider and think on this morning. It's the first part that leads to the second part and why this king is so great. So we want to consider that this morning in chapter 22, what I've entitled Josiah and the book. Josiah and the book. It'll become obvious here in just a moment. This young Josiah, he's eight years old. <laughs> eight years old. Anybody eight? They're probably at cross train. Eight years old. King. He's coming to the throne after a half a century, 50 plus years of unprecedented spiritual darkness and evil from Manasseh and his son. And we're going to see just how dark things are as he comes to the throne. So let me read 2 Kings chapter 22. I'm going to read the whole chapter. It's only 20 verses this week, so it's not quite as long. But let's listen. Josiah and the book here. I'm going to pick it up at verse 3. We read the first two verses. It says in verse 3, Now it came about in the 18th year of King Josiah. So what's that? He's uh, 26 now. 26 years old. So really probably on his own. That the king sent Shaphan. And all, let me pause there. All through this account, Josiah is the subject of all these actions. He is the king. He's the leader. And, and the way the account is structured is around these main actions of Josiah. And the first one is he sent, he's 26 years old, he sent Shaphan, the son of Ahaziah, the, the son of Meshulamam, the scribe, to the house of Yahweh, saying, Go up to Hilkiah, the high priest, that he may count the money brought in to the house of Yahweh, which the doorkeepers have gathered from the people. And let them deliver it into the hand of the workmen who have oversight of the house of Yahweh, and let them give it to the workmen who are in the house of Yahweh to repair the damages to the house, to the carpenters and the builders and the masons for the buying of timber and hewn stone to repair the house. Only no accounting shall be made with them for the money delivered into their hands, for they deal faithfully. Now just stop there. If you've been with us in Kings, that might sound a little familiar that story, and it is familiar. In fact, it's almost identical to the account of a previous king named Joash, Jehoash. Do you remember that? He was also a little king, seven years old when he became king. Remember, Joash was the one, he was the last descendant of David that they protected as an infant. They hid him in the temple. Remember, his aunt hid him in the temple. He was raised there. Then at age seven, they declare him king, and they make this covenant. A lot of parallels between these two kings. They're intentional. And Joash, in that story, what marked his reign is that he repaired the temple. That is all about just like this. He repaired the temple, collected money. They didn't need an accounting. Almost identical language there. And we saw with that story back in Joash that that was a sign of his commitment to the centrality of the worship of Yahweh. His commitment to the temple and repairing the temple was a sign that he was committed to Yahweh and the worship of Yahweh. It was a right priority he had in his kingdom. So we see the same thing here with Josiah focusing on the temple, repairing the temple. Remember, the temple at this point is 300 years old. So we've been around 300-year-old buildings. They need repair. Who knows what happened under Manasseh? The kind of things he did to the temple and others and the neglect that has happened to this temple. So 
His first priority here is repair the temple. So it's just like that other king. However, all of that is just background. That's not the main point at all. This is just background for the main point that's coming, namely finding the book. So let's read the rest of it here. Verse 8. Then Hilkiah, the high priest, said to Shaphan, the scribe, I have found the book of the law in the house of Yahweh. Then Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan, who read it. And Shaphan, the scribe, came to the king and brought back word to the king and said, Your servants have emptied out the money that was found in the house, have delivered it into the hand of the workmen who have oversight of the house of the Lord. Moreover, Shaphan, the scribe, told the king, saying, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book, and Shaphan read it in the presence of the king. And it came about when the king heard the words of the book of the law that he tore his clothes. Then the king commanded Hilkiah the priest, Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, Achbor, the son of Micaiah, Shaphan the scribe, and Ahaziah, the king's servant, saying, Go, inquire of Yahweh for me and the people in all Judah concerning the words of this book that have been found. For great is the wrath of Yahweh that burns against us because our fathers have not listened to the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. So Hilkiah the priest and Ahikam and Achbor and Shaphan and Ahaziah went to Huldah the prophetess, the wife of Shalom, the son of Tikvah, the son of Harhas, keeper of the wardrobe. Now she lived in Jerusalem in the second quarter, and they spoke to her. And she said to them, Thus says Yahweh, God of Israel, Tell the man who sent you to me, Thus says Yahweh, Behold, I bring evil on this place and on its inhabitants, even all the words of the book which the king of Judah has read. Because they have forsaken me and burned incense to other gods that they might provoke me to anger with all the work of their hands. Therefore, my wrath burns against this place and it shall not be quenched. But to the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of Yahweh, thus you shall say to him, thus says Yahweh, God of Israel, regarding the words which you have heard, because your heart was tender and you humbled yourself before Yahweh when you heard what I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, that they should become a desolation and a curse. And you have torn your clothes and have wept before me. I truly have heard you, declares Yahweh. Therefore, behold, I will gather you to your fathers, and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace. Neither shall your eyes see all the evil which I will bring on this place. So they brought back word. To the king. Josiah and the book. <laughs> That's the main point of this. Not the temple repairs, but what they found in the temple, the book, and how often you heard that word, the book, the book used. Just the word for the scroll, the book here, the book of the law. So they discover it. Now you get some sense again of just how dark it is spiritually in Judah at this point. It's not not that Josiah said, I want you to go search for the book. You should go look for the book. He didn't. He said, go repair the temple. And then they found the book. Meaning, it's been obscured, lost, during that reign, 55-year reign of Manasseh and the two-year reign of his son, obviously neglected. Now, they would have kept it in the temple, 
scroll, the book. It's been neglected, not used, and then apparently, not just not being used, but not aware of its existence. Again, they're not on a search for the book, like, we know this book's here, we've got to find it. They're not. And then they find it, and he reads it to them, and he tears his clothes, right? He wasn't aware of the contents of the book. That's remarkable. That is remarkable, the state that Judah is in. The book has been obscured, apparently not aware that it exists, unaware of its contents. And then they find it. Now, you know how they found it or whether during the reign of Manasseh, the priest had put it away and hid it because Manasseh would not have liked the book. <laughs> However, they discover it. And you would think probably that discovering what great joy there would be discovering the book, but it proves to be the exact opposite because of the contents of the book. <laughs> so the, the question probably is, well, what is the book? Right? Just ask that. Let's start with that question. What is this book? Well, we have to kind of piece it together here. It's not hard. Just uh, piece the clues together. Look with me. Let's, let's put the clues together, and I think we can tell exactly what the book is here. So in verse 8, <clears throat> he says, he calls it the book of Torah, the book of the law, I have found. It's called the book of the law. And then in verse 13, we're told that whatever this book is, it contains Threats of God's judgment, his curse, right? Because when he hears it read, Josiah, he says in verse 13, how great is the wrath of Yahweh that burns because our fathers didn't listen to the words of this book. So it contains the threat of judgment. It contains things they were supposed to do. It says the same thing down in verse 19, where the Lord is speaking. I spoke against this place that is in the book. I spoke against this place. And it's inhabit, they should become a desolation and a curse. It contains the curse of the covenant in this book. Chapter 23, speak down there, because we'll see the book continues to be highlighted in the beginning here. It's called the book of the covenant in verse 2, the book of the covenant, even as they make a covenant. And then in verse 3 of chapter 23, we're told that it contains all the words of the covenant. The words of the covenant are in this book. And then one last clue as to what this book is, all the way down in verse 21 of chapter 23, it tells them they're supposed to keep the Passover. So they're going to celebrate the Passover because of the words of this book. So you put all that together. What is this book? Well, it's pretty obvious. It's at least the book of Deuteronomy. That's what it is. It's that book, at least that book. Now, we don't know if there's more contained with the book of Deuteronomy or a signi very significant portion of the book of Deuteronomy because that's the book. That's the book of the Bible that has all of this. The book of Deuteronomy or likely a, a large portion of it. It's probably the same book, the same scroll that we read in chapter 17 that the king was supposed to write out, the words of this law. That book, in fact... In the Bible, there's only one book that calls itself the book of the law. It's the book of Deuteronomy. It's how it refers to itself, the book of Deuteronomy. So that's the book. 
Remember that book, the book of Deuteronomy. I know our youth, I think, many of our youth just studied the book of Deuteronomy, I think, last week. So youth, do you remember the book of Deuteronomy as the restatement of the Mosaic Covenant, restatement of the law? All the stipulations of the covenant are contained in there. In fact, the book of Deuteronomy, if you remember, is written as a covenant. It's part of a covenant renewal. It's written in a covenant form. And at the end of that book of Deuteronomy, it contains the blessings and the curses. If you don't keep the words of this book, if you don't keep the covenant here, here's the curses. And it's a long section of curses. And that's no doubt part of what Josiah hears. So that's the book they find. Now, just pause there and just remember. There is a book. <laughs> I want to highlight this. That is God's revelation is written in a book. It's written in a book. <laughs> Don't pass this by. We're so used to this. We're so accustomed to this. I love these places in Scripture when it refers to itself and the, the writing of Scripture. And this is one of those places where they're finding one of the books of the Bible here. And it's written down. God's word, God's revelation is a written revelation by his design. That's his plan. That is, it's not merely oral stories, not merely oral traditions that have been handed down over centuries and centuries. No, it's written down. There is a book Moses wrote. The prophets wrote. The apostles, we come to the new covenant, wrote, didn't we? We are a people of the book. Always have been God's people, a people of the book, his written revelation. That's why we call it, we just call it Bible. It's just a word for book. What a creative title. Book. <laughs> it's the Bible, right? The Biblos. Or the other word the New Testament uses, graphe, the writings, the sacred writings. And all writings, referring to this book, are theonoustos. They are God-breathed. All writings are God. The written word is His word. Isn't that remarkable? And here we see it. So I just can't pass that by. So what I want us to think on as we think of Josiah in the book, as I said, we'll get to the main points of this whole account of Josiah next time. But I want to reflect for a little bit on Josiah's response to the book as a model for how we respond to the book and how we thought of this book. Because that's what's highlighted there in chapter 22 and it's what's going to lead to all that he does even in the next chapter. So let me highlight three things. Three things. I hope they're obvious. Number one, an infallible word. An infallible word. The first thing to note, again, you could just read right by this, but don't read right by it. Here's the, here's the only main thing I'll give you under this. The, the, book, the book is received as God's authoritative word which is true and unfailing. So that's the book. It's received as God's authoritative word, which is true 
and unfailing. It's just immediately recognized by everyone who handles it, right? The priest, the scribe, and then when Josiah hears it, it's just immediately recognized as authoritative. Like, we've, we've got to do something. It's infallible. What that book just said is going to happen. So just note that. The Lord himself, through the prophetess, equates what's written in that book with his word. Again, don't pass it. This is where we get our, what we call it our doctrine of inspiration, and we believe the, the Bible, the written word, is the word of God, because it testifies everywhere that it is. So just notice that. Look down at verse 19 of that chapter. Now the Lord is speaking through the prophetess. So these are his words, first person. And he says to Josiah, because your heart was tendered and you humbled yourself before the Lord, when you heard, what's he say? What I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants that they should become a desolation and a curse. Where did he speak that? In the book. What, what did he hear? He heard the book read and God said, you heard what I spoke. This is his word, as I said. It's authoritative because it's God's word. So Josiah, the first thing he does is he just receives it as authoritative and infallible. Infallible just means it can't fail. It's going to come to pass. There's no questioning. There's no doubting. Remember, when was that book written? Well, 800 years ago. No, there's none of this. Well, I'm not sure of the authorship of that book. Yeah, it's been through so many redactions and edits. Who really knows what the kernel of truth of God's word is? There's none of that. It's just his word. His word that was written down. There's no questioning. I'm not really sure God said that. Can we really be sure he said that? It's just received immediately as the word of God. It, is, it claims to be his word. That, that's true, not just of the book of Deuteronomy, but as we come to understand the fullness of the book, the Bible, the reason we believe, key reason we believe this book is God's word is because it claims to be God's word over and over and over and over and over. And that's not circular reasoning. It's just testifying that it is. That is, our belief that this book is God's word is not something we projected upon it centuries later. Well, it just it feels like God's word. It feels like it should be inspired. And isn't it so inspiring? Like we gave it. No, it just claims to be. This is what I spoke. Thus says the Lord. So it's received. And as such, just one other note there, as God's word, it demands a response. It demands a response. You cannot be neutral to God's word. When the God of the universe who made you, who made all things, speaks, you can't be neutral towards it. Don't ignore it. Now, people can ignore it to their peril. It demands a response. So that's the second thing we see with Josiah. His response, number two, second observation, a, quote, hearing heart. <laughs> a hearing heart. This is how he responds. 
One of the key words in this chapter is the word hear, the Hebrew word shema. That key word of Deuteronomy chapter 6, hero Israel, Shema. That's the key word. It's five times from verses 11 through 19. It's used five times in this chapter. And you see it, it's expressing how he responds. That is how Josiah responds. So you see it there in verse 11. It came about when the king heard the words of the book that he tore his clothes. He responds when he hears. He has a hearing heart, a listening heart heart. Just the opposite in verse 13, when he says that great wrath is coming because our fathers did not hear the words of this book. They didn't listen. They didn't hear so as to heed it. So in the Bible, when it talks about hearing, a hearing heart, it's hear so as to obey, hear as to heed it. And they didn't do that. But all through this, Josiah does. So notice, how does how do we see this listening, hearing heart. Josiah expresses humility, mourning, and repentance upon hearing God's word. That's his response. As I say, he doesn't question the authority of it. He just immediately submits to it. He expresses humility, mourning, and repentance upon hearing God's word. It is said in verse 19, this is what the Lord says of him. Do you see it down there? Because your heart was tender, it was soft, pliable. What a great description of a heart. A tender heart. Listening. Submitting. Able to be corrected. He had a tender heart. It wasn't calloused. He didn't offer any excuses. No rationalization when he heard it, but immediate humility and trembling. That's the tearing of the clothes, right? It's the sign of, I'm in trouble. Sign of repentance, a sign of terror, because he just heard what the book said. And then he takes action. The next action verb, after hearing this word, Verse 12, he commanded all of these officials to go inquire of Yahweh. So why is he doing this? It's not that he's doubting that this book is true. He knows it's true. That's why he's going to inquire of Yahweh to find out, man, if this book is true and we just lived through 57 years and in the first part of his reign, this kind of wickedness and evil, what's the Lord, what's his present Response to our gross disobedience. Or, how much time do we have? Go inquire. Find out. Are we supposed to do something? That's what he's, he's just eager to take out. He's eager to seek the Lord here as he hears his word. Is there any, any hope of rescue here after hearing the indicting word? So they go. And they find, in this case, a prophetess. A prophetess right in Jerusalem, a female prophet. Now, that's not too common in the scripture, but there are a handful. In fact, we're told of four in all the Bible's revelation. So normally, men are in this role, but not limited to this role of prophet speaking God's word into these situations. So she does speak God's words. And the point, they're giving kind of all her, her marriage and background 
there is just to say that she's right in Jerusalem. She's the wife of this person. They live. There's a prophet available right in Jerusalem. That's quite remarkable after all that we saw with Manasseh and his son. So she's available. They go to find out and inquire, and she delivers the Lord's word is devastating. Basically, yeah, it's over. There's no hope. That's what he says. I mean, it's really a terrifying word. My wrath burns against this place, and it shall not be quenched. There's nothing you're going to do to quench this. That's his word. There's no stopping my judgment. I said, now that becomes what I think is the main point of the account of Josiah that we'll get to more next week, that the Lord's judgment is irreversible. It's not what we're expecting. So I say it kind of jumps off and we'll see it as kind of the main point because we're thinking, oh, you know, the Lord's going to relent. Here's, here's his king, such a good king, and he's broken over this. And you think he's going to say, if, if your people repent, then I will not judge. It's not what he says. He just says, my wrath's coming, and it's unquenchable. However, to you personally, Josiah. So here's the second note on this hearing. God hears Josiah and grants him mercy in the face of his inevitable judgment. See it there right at the end of verse 20? He says, truly, I have heard you. I've heard you. I've seen your repentance, your weeping. I saw your immediate response when you heard my word. Therefore, and again, I'm thinking, therefore, God's going to say, I'm turning from my judgment. He just says, um, you're going to die in peace. That is, you won't see what I'm going to do. So he extends a mercy for his life which ironically means you're going to have a really short life. He is. 39, he's dead. So, but you won't see this evil that's coming on the nation. So the Lord is merciful to Josiah here. Again, we should marvel. The Lord hears. We've, we've highlighted this through Kings. The Lord hears our cries. He hears his people. As they cry out to him in faith and for mercy, he hears. Last week, we, we thought on how remarkable God's long-suffering is in the face of provocation. Right? 55 years of Manasseh, the Lord's long-suffering. And here, his anger is burning and it's about to be quenched, he says. I'm bringing judgment. But even in that state, the Lord shows mercy to Josiah. He hears and he, he just, God's delight to show mercy. God loves to show mercy. And he comes to him with this tenderness, this tender heart, and God delights to do it, and, and he does. So again, Josiah just serves as another example. We've seen this through Kings. God's inevitable judgment is coming. All these pictures of his judgment. His judgment is coming. This final judgment is coming. It will be just. It is inevitable, it's unavoidable, it's on his time scale, remember. And yet today, it's a day of mercy. For you, for me individually, to call out to him for mercy. Today in Christ, God delights to rescue 
so that we escape this inevitable judgment. So Josiah is another picture of that truth. Third, last observation and response here. Number three, an unreserved obedience. An unreserved obedience. Now, I just want you to pause here. We're going to dip into chapter 23. I just want to read the first few verses of that because it keeps on the theme of the book. Just pause here. You just heard, imagine you just heard what God said to Josiah. I'm bringing judgment. Nothing you can do. Nothing you can do is going to stop that. I'll have mercy on you for your lifetime. The end. That's, That's his response. So what do you do? What's your response? How do you respond to that? Well, look what Josiah does. So let me read just, again, those first three verses. I'll put this on the screen in case it's not in front of you there. Chapter 23. Then the king, this is what he does. Now, here's the next action verb. Remember, he sent, he commanded, now he sends again. Then the king sent, he gathered him all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem. And the king went up to the house of Yahweh, went up to the temple, and all the men of Judah, and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem with him, and the priests, and the prophets, and all the people, both small and great. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant, which was found in the house of Yahweh. And the king stood by the pillar. Remember, pillar is one of those on the front of the temple. And he made a covenant before Yahweh to walk after Yahweh, to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and with all his soul, to carry out the words of this covenant that were written in this book. And all the people entered into the covenant. That's what he does. So let's come back to this point, an unreserved obedience. Like Moses... He's Moses-like here. He led the nation in a covenant renewal to keep all the words of this book. Do you love that? We just found this book. Everybody needs to hear the book. And so he just gets everybody together. Now it's too late for Judah. It's not going to matter. I don't care. They need to hear the book, right? So he gets everybody together, and I love it. He read all the words of the book. Read it all. Don't skip it. Read all the hard words in that book. So they all get to hear the book. And then he leads them in this renewal covenant. Because remember the book of Deuteronomy that he's reading. Is a covenant renewal. And so they just renew the covenant right here. To keep all the words of the book. Why do you care? Josiah. It's not going to matter. He just told you that. And that becomes part of the question. What's his motivation? Why does it matter? Why bother? You're going to die in peace. Go back to your palace. Die in peace. Because nothing's going to change. Now we're going to see next time, kind of again, the heart of this story. It's not just covenant renewal, but the reformation that he institutes. This Sweepy, you can read ahead and read of that in chapter 23. It's the main action that he does. The reformation he does is just incredible. And you're saying, why? What is the point? So where does this come from? Where does it come from? So just a second note here. 
his obedience and future further reformation is not based on outcome, either personal or national, but out of a love for the Lord and a submission to his good word. That's it. Because that's the heart of a believer. I don't know the outcome. It may not make any practical difference at all in this situation. It's not going to change the nation. So why? Because I love the Lord. And His Word is good. His Word is right. That's why. Do I need another reason? His Word is good. His Word is right. So as I said down in verse 25 again in chapter 23, that little summary. Again, where it evaluates it. Because this is how he's going to live these next years. He's only got 13 years left. But this is the summary in verse 25, that there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart, with all his soul, and with all his might. Again, that's the reflection of the words of Deuteronomy 6, meaning he loved the Lord with all his heart, soul, might. He loved the Lord. He turned to the Lord with all that he had for the rest of his life, and he wouldn't depart from it. Why? Because it's God's word. And God is good, and God is true, and God is worthy to be served like this and loved like this, no matter what happens. It's not pragmatism. I'm just going to do it because of what I'm going to get out of it. Do it because it's right. Because it's His Word. Because God is good. And His Word is the best thing for me always. Believe that? What a model He is. What a model Josiah is. Of how you respond to the book. To the word of God. So I just close. I want to finish. That's all we're going to see today. We'll leave the rest of it for next time. What is our response to the word of God? What's our response to the book? Right? Meditate on that. Think it. Josiah is such a good model. It's practical. Do we receive it as the word of God? Is there a trembling before this book? God says, to this one will I look, to him who is humble and contrite of heart and who trembles at my word. Like, is it just ever, you stand on and say, this is God's word I'm holding, I'm reading a book like this book does that just ever knock you over because you can't wait to get to the book because it's his word Mm. so you do do you receive it as authoritative like Josiah did questioning I'm not sure it's really God's well it's a lot of history there a lot of time has gone by we don't really know do you receive it for what it says it is the very word of God like those Believers in Thessalonica, when they heard the gospel, this word of God, they received it not as the word of men for what it really is, the word of God. Do we have tender hearts before it? Tender, contrite, soft, pliable hearts. Again, it's easy to read the Bible and just read. 
just for information? Does it impact you? Are you tender towards it when it teaches, when it corrects, when it reproves, when it exposes us? And then do we obey without reservation? Like Josiah, just immediate. You've got to respond. Do we obey without reservation? Not merely when I agree, <laughs> what feels good to me. Not simply because it might make the situation better. It may not. It may make it a lot worse. Really? Do we obey because it's his word and we know it's good? Even if it doesn't feel good right now, or I can't see it. Oh, it's his word. It's good. Do we trust the promises that we read in here? That it's infallible, that it will come to pass. What's your response to the word of God? That's why Sunday after Sunday, you know this, we just don't apologize to give ourselves to the book. What else are we going to do? Really? The book, God's word, open it, read it, love it, respond to it. Don't grow callous to it. You know, Josiah is so excited because he hasn't heard it. And he hears it for the first time. And, he's, and we can grow familiar in a wrong way to it where we have a callousness. So that's my challenge to you. As we begin this week of prayer and fasting, we want you to encounter the book. <laughs> it's part of your praying. That's why in that prayer guide, we list those scriptures there. And we'd love for you to begin with reading those. And those scriptures are about, as Frank said, the one another's. And so our, my prayer here for me and for all of us is as we encounter scriptures on the one another's, that we're praying with an open Bible. I hope you do pray with an open Bible and that we're asking for a tender heart and obedience. Should God show us and expose us? I'm not doing that. I'm not living like that. Or encourage us with his promises or with others who have served us, encouraged us, that we just have a tenderness in a new way to his word to expose us to these one another's. So that's my prayer as we enter the week of prayer. Now, maybe, maybe you're here this morning and you have never responded to God's word. Maybe, maybe you never read it for yourself. Maybe you have a copy, it's, you know, on the bookshelf somewhere. You've never opened the book. You've never responded to God's word. You've never responded to this word of the gospel, the good news. It's where you start. Frank quoted it earlier. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Repent. Repent and turn to Christ. There's the word of God. Maybe that word you've never responded to. I just share. I, I just remember my experience. I told maybe in the past, you know, growing up in a, a church home very traditional, very liturgic uh, for my life. I never opened the book. Never. 18 years, never opened this book. I had heard bits of it, little stories here and there, read here and there. Never opened the book. And by that time, as a senior in high school, you know, I, what I've been taught was, well, just try to be good and hopefully that'll work out for you at the end. And, 
And I, I wasn't sure what I believed. And I remember my brother, as I've shared with this, coming home and as a believer, and he opened the book. Like, I didn't know, I didn't know anything. And he opened it. And I'll never forget the first time. It's so distinct in my memory. The first time I heard these words. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. Not as a result of works that no one should boast. And I said, that's in the Bible? Like that's in the book? <laughs> it can't be in the book. I've been telling something different my whole life. And I read it. And it changed my life. It's in the book. I believe it. It's his promise. Have you responded to him that way? His promise to you in Christ. May you have a tender heart as we come to his word. Let me pray for us. And then we're going to sing a song that's a prayer. It's a prayer about his word. Speak, O Lord. As we kick off this week of prayer, the song will be a prayer for us that we would be tender-hearted to his word. Let me pray for us, and then we'll sing. Oh, Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this book. May you increase our appetite, our hunger, our desire, our trembling and rejoicing for the book this morning. Your word, unlike anything else. Oh, if we've grown so dull or we've fed ourselves with so much other junk, that we've lost our appetite, would you renew that appetite this morning and then give us a tender heart. Speak, O oh Lord, through your word. This week as we pray, speak to us through your word that we might be conformed to the likeness of Jesus. We ask in his name, amen.